Hello and welcome to The Mason Jar on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and coming up, we have an interview that Cindy Rollins conducted with Camille Malucci, who is an expert in in something called SLOID, S-L-O-Y-D is how you spell that, and I'll say a bit more about that in a second. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Uh, first, I need to say a quick word from our sponsors this month. The Cersei Institute Podcast Network is brought to you in June by the Institute for Excellence in Writing. They equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. At IEW, it is their privilege to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. To learn more about IEW, including learning more about their podcast or Andrew Pudua's speaking schedule, you can head over to IEW.com. And thanks so much for IEW. Uh, sponsoring this month. As I've said before, we're, we're really grateful to be partnering with them and they have been great friends, great and loyal friends to us for a long, long time. And uh, I hope you will go check them out and, and continue to support them as, as I know that many of you do. So so thanks to Andrew Pudua and Julie Walker and the whole crew over at IEW for sponsoring. And again, it is IEW.com. And do check out their podcast. You can find that on iTunes or uh, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. And that's a weekly show, about 20 to 30 minutes per episode, uh, covering different topics uh, related to memory work or writing or, um, you know, things related to that, that that IEW is generally interested in. The Mason Jar is brought to you by Morning Tide to Eventide which is excited to announce that their online store is now open. Owners Delaney and Jennifer Bascom have been homeschooling their four children for 13 years while running a thriving printing company at the same time. But they now offer magnetic, tactile, schedule boards and planners for homeschoolers. Their products are the solution you have been looking for to homeschool with confidence and efficiency, perfectly suited to bring peace through order to the Charlotte Mason and classical homeschooler. Just as the sun rises and says each day, the tide comes in and goes out without fail, and the seasons cycle through each year in due time. Just as that is true, you too can keep consistent rhythms in your home and so enjoy the blessings of peaceful and restful homeschool days. Morning Tide to Eventide gives you the tools you need to order your true good and beautiful lessons with their innovative Magtide schedule boards and Christian Year paper planners. Enjoying the blessings of keeping time with the Christian Year and achieving quality homeschool lessons which you and your students will remember fondly for a lifetime is just a click away. If you head over to Morningtide to Eventide.com, that's Morningtide to Eventide.com, you can share in the Morningtide community by joining the Facebook group Morningtide to Eventide as well. And again, that is morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G-T-I-D-E. So morningtide to eventide.com. That's not eveningtide, it's eventide. So E-V-E-N-T-I-D-E.com. Morningtide to eventide.com. So thanks to Jennifer and Delaney uh, and to the whole Morningtide to Eventide community for sponsoring the, the Mason Jar this month. Check them out. They're doing some cool stuff. We really like their their products we have they sent us some stuff to take a look at and i know some of the the homeschooling families here in our office have uh, snatched a few of those things up so we encourage you to check them out and are excited to be partnering with them on the mason jar uh, throughout the summer a little bit okay so the interview that we're about to present is an interview that cindy rollins recently did with um, as i said camille malucci 
Um, and she has done some writing over at the Charlotte Mason Institute and a number of other places. Uh, quickly, I'll say a little bit about her before I mention just what Sloyd is. So before, you know, give you a little preview, a little taste before before the interview. But Camille Malucci is a homeschooling mother of four that lives in the Midwest. She blogs at learninghowtolive.com and is a contributor at the Charlotte Mason IRL Instagram community. So on Instagram, you can just look up at Charlotte Mason IRL. Um, and again, that's on Instagram. She loves handicrafts, architecture, travel, and time alone to read whenever she can get it. Yeah, that sounds good, actually. Me too. Um, and again, her blog is learninghowtolive.com. So she is an expert, if you will, in Sloyd. And she wrote an article for the Charlotte Mason Institute uh, on Sloyd, which is a, it is a handicraft. Um, and as she writes in her article on it, unlike many of the handicrafts we think of today, the purpose of Sloyd is not the output of a product, but the formation of the student. And I'll continue reading here just for a second. Sloyd's creator, Otto Solomon, wanted to aid the children in the development of their character by encouraging moral behavior, intelligence, and industriousness. Uh, and Charlotte Mason might have used it because the habits of accuracy, attention, and self-control are all being formed through Sloyd, among many others. Uh, and this article is really good. There's a, there's a lot more stuff here. And if you head over to the charlottemasoninstitute.org, you can check that out. But I'll let you get a richer taste of what Sloyd is uh, from this interview with Cindy and Camille Malucci. So we're here today with Camille Malucci. And um, I'm excited to talk to her today because we're going to talk about something I absolutely know nothing about. And so it's always fun to actually get on a podcast and learn something. So I'm hoping that as I'm learning, you guys are all going to be learning too. And we'll have this uh, new body of knowledge that we can bring to our homeschools. But um, so, so Camille, first of all, how do you say your last name? I should have asked you that first, but um, first question. You you said it exactly right. It is Malucci. Okay, great. (laughs) Um, Now our, our first question for most of our guests, is how did you hear about Charlotte Mason? Well, well, actually, let me let me back up. Tell us a little bit first about your family. Well, I have been married for 13 years, I guess next week, um, to my husband, Jason, and we have four kids, three boys and a girl. Uh, they're all 11 and down to two. And we live in southern Ohio, sort of in the heart of the country, and we have been doing Charlotte Mason, not quite since the get-go, but almost. So how did you hear about Charlotte um, then? Did you just stumble upon her or? Well, we were in a co-op and at the time I was expecting my third child and I was sort of overwhelmed with the co-op and with a lot of the stuff that was going on. And a friend I had made, uh, we just we would talk and um, especially after the baby was born that same year, she would just sort of hear me complaining about things. And she said, have you ever read Charlotte Mason? And I said, no. And I downloaded it on my Kindle that night from the Ambleside online site, the first book home education. And I pretty much plowed through it between nursing and, you know, not sleeping at night And the next time I saw her, I was like, I read that book you told me about. That's what I want. (laughs) And she just looked at me and she goes, you did what? And I said, I read it. And she's like, we have been reading that in our book club for a year. (laughs) And um, 
And then she said, well, we're going on to do volume six. Do you want to be in the book club after the new year? And I said, yeah, yeah, I really do. And so then I got introduced to a whole group of ladies who are all exploring it together. Some were already a couple of years into it and some were new, just like me. And it was just such a wonderful community of women. And I think that year, my oldest was about seven mm. and I just switched it up right that spring and said, before fall starts, we are going to do year one. <laughs> As you can tell, my mindset was still not exactly Charlotte Mason then, but um, I didn't want to miss any of those books. They just right, right. Good, so. Yeah, that's right. You had that um, seven-year-old, so you had this perfect timing too. Exactly. So pretty much from that point, I mean, we've been doing and learning and trying our best to live out the principles Okay, so you're you're you you haven't done that perfectly, but you're trying your best. I, I really like what oh, you heaven, said. Oh heaven, no! <laughs> uh, so you started, and that's an unusual. That's really an unusual answer by reading home education first. Hardly anybody says that, and I find that really interesting. Our um, church right now, um, the moms, the Charlotte Mason moms in our church are going to read um, are reading home education this summer, and they've invited me to come along. So. I, I hope I'll be at a couple of their meetings at least, but I'm I'm really looking forward to it because it's been a while since I've read that volume. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that was a good time for me to read it because all my kids were seven and under, and so I was really living in that sort of small kid world predominantly. But I love that we went into volume six next because that really gave me a vision of what this education looks like you know, going forward, and the big yeah, picture, like yeah. a plan ahead personalities. I really wanted to know what that looked like. And so it's a real blessing to sort of read both of those within a year of each other. Not, yeah, about a year. Yeah, so. so you had the bookends and that really was probably a great way. Then you could go back and kind of wade through all the, the other volumes eventually. And, and exactly. Yeah. Good, good plan. Okay. So you are, um, going to be our resident expert on something called Sloyd, which um, honestly, until recently, I had never even heard of it. And then I slowly, you know, being in the Charlotte Mason world, would hear people talking about it. And I think just the word itself seemed so strange and overwhelming to me that I didn't really, um, and I don't have any small children, so... Um, I didn't have a lot of motivation to find out about it, but now I've decided I want to know about it. So um, I've been told to ask you, so what in the world is Sloyd? Well, it's funny because if you're reading in the volumes, it's one of those blink and you'll miss it kind of words. She doesn't put a lot of emphasis on it, but when she does mention Sloyd, it's in this like very passing, very obvious kind of, and of course, paper Sloyd, you know, and her list list of handicrafts. Yeah, like it's obviously um, there, right. Exactly. Like everyone does this. Um, and so when we were doing handicrafts in, you know, with all the group of the ladies and we wanted to introduce our kids to some handicrafts, I sort of became the default handicraft lady because I like to knit and I like to sew and I like to do all sorts of crafty kind of things. And a lot of the ladies didn't. And so one of them said, well, you know what? She mentioned Floyd in this really passing way. Like we're all supposed to know about it. Why don't you go find out? So <laughs> I got a sign to find out about Sloyd. And it really is pretty interesting. The word itself sounds funny because it's Swedish. Um, and I won't even attempt to pronounce it in the Swedish way. But um, it really, 
is a hard word to translate. The best we can do is like handwork. Um, we might say handicrafts, but from what I understand, it really holds like a big, deeper meaning to it. Sort of like the work of our hands. It has like a, a richness and a depth to it. Something that you take pride in, something that you really put forth a lot of effort into. Um, and so to me, I also understand it better when I think about like the Swedish Nordic kind of culture, so much of what they would do, especially with their very long nights, would be to work within the home. And this is funny because you posted about Kristen Lovren's daughter the other day, and it really got me thinking about that book of, you know, they would sort of start to settle in when the days got short and, you know, the father would whittle and the mother would weave and they would tan the skins and, you know, like they would really have all these kinds of work that they did together. Right. So, right. you know, there's this whole culture within the Nordic peoples of, you know, staying in, even now everyone's reading those books on like Higa and all the rest of it, if that's how you pronounce it. Of like Oh, that's right. Being yeah, cozy and, right. About how to have a simplified lifestyle of, of the Nordic. Exactly. And Nordic. so come the industrial revolution, now there's factories to weave and now there's factories to make furniture and now there's factories to make clothing. And this Otto Solomon up in Sweden was really lamenting this change in people because rather than really taking pride in the handwork that was, you know, a part of their culture and a part of their people, they were becoming these people who really felt like, well, once you hit a certain status, you can pay for those things to be made. And we don't need to teach our children how to take pride in their workmanship and how to do these things anymore. We've moved on from that. But he didn't really believe that that was the right thing to do. He believed there's like a humanizing element to this type of work. And so he methodized Floyd into, he specifically focused on wood, but um, mm -hmm. it then became a part of the school systems in Sweden and in Norway and in Denmark and a couple other places. It's actually still legally part of their curriculum. And so to this day, if you go to Finland or Norway and all these places, they do like, I think, four hours of Floyd a week. And wow. <laughs> yeah. And it has really expanded uh, in talking to a friend of mine whose family is over there. They do things like sewing and knitting and woodworking and all these other things that really are part of home life, or at least were at one point they all fall under this beautiful category of Sloyd. And, so this really um, was, it, it was a, a truly was a reaction against the technology technology that was stealing that away from the culture. So this was actually created as a way to hold on to, to those things, those things, uh, those hand, that, that, the, that tradition of handwork. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, where Otto Solomon focused on wood, he started a school. Um, even to this day, the sixth grade project, usually they go from first through sixth grade through Sloyd, is um, to make a bench or a stool using dovetail joinery and then to upholster mm. the bench. Um, so it does have sort of a focus on wood, and that's where most of the literature that you can find is focused on wood. But then some of the students who, the students weren't like elementary age who would have gone to his school, he taught teachers. And so these teachers would then be sent out into schools, sort of similar to what Charlotte did. And he was actually a contemporary of hers. He was in the late 1800s and died in 1907. So
so even what she got from his method was as he was developing it and soon after he died. So it was, you know, sort of the earliest stages of his work out in schools. And, you know, he would send these teachers forth and they would impart this beautiful method out mm-hmm. to the children. And that was their way of like coming back to their, you know, cultural roots in a way. But then some of those teachers went on to create paper sloyd and cardboard sloyd. And some of them went into the way of like weaving and wool and knitting and spinning and things like that. So sloyd then again had this like broader definition rather than just most of the literature we can find of his, which is about wood. Okay, so so now it has a broader, it, different, many different mediums, but it all comes under the name Sloyd, and it all is is what I like to call remembrance. It it, it is part of that tradition of remembrance. That oh is yes. what education really memory. is. Yes, I, I'm just so fat. Ever, I, I I'm like a broken record this year, but. Uh, the word remembrance just keeps coming up over and over and over again, and I can, and I can see that this just ties in beautifully with that whole. Um, if education is remembrance, then um, how important is it that we participate in these things, these these crafts of the past? And and it's hard Absolutely. for us to do it because if you don't have skill, um, but but are these crafts? Which I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but would you say that they're set up to be accessible to people who don't have the tradition? I uh, Absolutely. I think they're aimed primarily at elementary school students and they start at the very basic levels with that a six or seven year old could take on. And so I think a mother easily could take it on right alongside her child, especially, I mean, if you can stay one lesson ahead, then you're in great shape. And for the book that's my favorite resource on this for Paper Sloyd, which is um, Paper Sloyd for Primary Grades by Edna Ann Rich. It's scripted. And if you read the introduction first, which is just a wealth of like all the skill parts of it explained so beautifully, then I think a mother could easily take this on at home and it shouldn't be a burden. I think it can be a really beautiful thing that you share with your children. So, um, so, so, so what did, so we have, you've said what Charlotte, so basically from, you went to search it out because of Charlotte Mason's mentioning it. Does she say anything else about it or is that it, is that it, is that all that we have on her, on her, um, on what, on her? Yes. In the volume, she really doesn't say much. She mentions it here and there in passing. When you look into the programs and try and see, well, where did she put it? It falls under general science, mm-hmm. and the books that she used were, or no, sorry, I'm just thinking of something else. Um, the books that she used were called carton work, and she mm-hmm. used those in basically like form one, and that book is lost to us. The only place I found it is in the Cambridge Library out in England, and it's not available for purchase anywhere. It's not scanned into the archives or the public domain. So we can't really see what's in there. Um, But we do have a book written by a student with the one I just mentioned, 
one of Otto Solomon's students who then created a paper sloyd for primary grades. And when you see the exam questions and a little bit of the blurb of the book and what's made in there, it's things like a box and a pinwheel and things like that. And those are the projects that are in this paper sloyd book. So I believe it's as close as we can get to what Charlotte actually had her form one kids do. So your friend sent you on this, this, the search, and then you found Sloyd. Did you bring that back to your group and then start doing it? <laughs> we did, and it was an eye-opening experience. <laughs> um, it was really, really lovely. I did it with two separate groups because we thought the age range was a little bit too broad. At that point, our little group had kids from like first grade up through fifth grade. So we did first and second graders together, and we did third through fifth graders together. And it's amazing the skills part of it, things like holding a ruler, drawing a line against the edge of a ruler, um, drawing a a nice small dot that you can see but isn't readily visible when you, you know, are all done with the folding of this project. Um, All those things we don't really ever practice doing. (laughs) So when kids start doing them, they really are learning how to do, you know, this, at least the proper Sloyd way, but a really lovely, beautiful, functional way. And so, you know, they can draw a straight line without the ruler rotating on them or, you know, sort of getting away from them. And so they have these like comfort levels then with the tools that they're using and with the paper, that raw material that they're using. And it really then scaffolds their ability to do other things like draw or, you know, what we're learning now is that Mason used Floyd to sort of scaffold geometry because wow. essentially what you get when you're doing all this, when you're drawing and measuring your lines, um, you're creating shapes and that's what you're cutting out. And so you have a square, which you then fold all four corners in and each of those four corners becomes a triangle. And what you're left when you fold them all into the center is yet another square it's a really concrete, beautiful way to see shapes and to see how they behave in relation to each other before you get into that abstract of geometry where these things are just drawn out for you on a piece of paper and you're supposed to understand, you know, square. That they represent shapes, right. Right. Exactly. Wow. That's amazing. So it's a, it's kind of teaching a precision tools, using tools, giving you confidence. Uh, Wow. So many things that we don't know and and just any kind of handwork, I'm sure does similar. And I think that is a lot of the reason that Charlotte chose Floyd because so much of what Charlotte aims at is the habit is, Mm -hmm. um, is this idea that we're forming a person and, you know, it's a formation of character And so it's not the material that we're teaching them, the information, it's the actual formation of their atmosphere and discipline in life. And then when you look at Otto Solomon, his book, and he lists his purposes of Floyd, all of them are along those same lines. He wants to instill a taste for and a love of labor in general, a respect for rough, honest bodily labor. Um, to develop independence, to train in habits of order, exactness, cleanliness, and neatness. So you can see where they'd really line up philosophically. What a great way. I have to say, you know, when when I first read Charlotte, I've said this many times on the podcast, 
But I really got freaked out by the whole idea of habits. Um, I, I think I was just, I, I, it just seemed overwhelming to me to try to instill habits in my kids at that time. Now I look back and I think, you know, uh, the things that we I was successful at in homeschooling were the habits that we created in the rhythm uh, uh, and morning time ended up saving me because it was a habit. But but it, this takes it out of, uh, oh, now we're going to have the habit of brushing our teeth and we have this concrete habit into we're going to develop these really spiritual, ethereal habits through this concrete way that isn't actually talking about habits, not trying to, you know, we're not purposely we're purposely doing it and we're purposely developing habits, but the, we're doing it in a way that is, is not um, inward, I guess. I don't know how to put that, <laughs> but I, no, I like absolutely. that a lot. I mean, there's really nothing quite like, I mean, the, in this Floyd, if you draw a line that's supposed to be six inches and you draw it six and a quarter or five and three quarters, and then you cut along that line and your shape doesn't start off as a square. It's a little bit, you know, wonky, which quite frankly, it will be. I mean, we're not also having robots in front of us, especially when you're starting off at age six, seven. But what they realize when you then give them the instruction to fold the square is that it doesn't line up the way that they want it to. And, mm -hmm. you know, if they have a model in front of them, it's really this sort of self-correcting and they'll, they'll ask like, well, why doesn't mine look like that? Or, you know, what happened here? And you can just say, okay, well, maybe it looks like, and you can even take the ruler out and measure, like, let's, let's find out, you know, what mm -hmm. happened. And they will realize like, oh, that's not six inches or whatever. And you don't have to correct it for them. You could just let them make that, you know, realization. And we're not going to redo it. We're not going to like, you know, there's no punishment or reward. It's just, okay, well, that's the way it is. It it's won't work. Right. Math don't in that do way. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. And then the beautiful thing of Floyd, too, is that you're always building on what you already know. And so many of the projects are very similar to each other. So the first many projects start out with the children measuring and then cutting out a six inch square. So if you didn't get it quite right with your envelope, well, maybe next time you'll get it right with your little ah. you know, wall pocket or in maybe the third time you'll get it right when you're doing your picture frame. And then each of these, the folding is just different enough to make it a different, useful, beautiful product at the end. But it's not really the product you're after. It's the habits and it's the skills and it's those things, precision and honesty and all these other things. And in children, they just naturally take to it, um, especially when done slowly and over time. I, I don't know if it was planned this way, but the idea of having their first project be this lovely little envelope, they immediately want to put something inside the envelope and uh, give it away and make another one. Okay. I've never wow, seen a child awesome. not want to do that. <laughs> yeah. So, and then they say, well, can I have more paper? And uh, you know, for the actual lesson itself, I use a relatively plain paper. They can see their lines clearly. It has a little bit of heft to it. It's a little bit thicker than printer paper. But then they're just going to go out and find whatever paper they can find in the art supply area or in the printer or wherever else. And they're going to try and decorate it or write a note to go inside of it. And so they get this practice so naturally because they just want to have more envelopes. Right, right. So so the, the it, there isn't, it, it's, is it very 
laid out. It's obviously logically laid out from project to project to project. And so you kind of just don't dive in the middle. You actually start at the beginning and, and your projects get increasingly difficult as you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. It starts off with something very simple and really the first parts of it, you're always working toward the project. You're never having like skills for the sake of skills. Mm. But when you are learning that first project, it's going to take you probably three times as long as any other one, because as you use the ruler the first time, we're, we're going to talk about, oh, well, you know, use your thumb and your forefinger to hold your ruler. And then you know, make your line with your pencil, always just touching your ruler so it doesn't get away and you have a nice straight line. And, <clears throat> excuse me, but even with short lessons, I mean, you're not going to get through that project in 10 minutes. It might take you 30 or 40 minutes, which means it'll take you three or four times of having this lesson to really get through and make that envelope. But mm-hmm. each time they're coming that little bit closer and they're, you know, putting all their effort into it. And then the next time they have to make a six inch square, they've already done it. And so they have this comfort level and this confidence. They can use their ruler well, you know, and their other things might be more difficult. Some kids have more trouble, you know, using scissors and cutting a straight line or, you know, making a dot that's not the size of their pinky finger. <laughs> There's always right, something. Right. But each of those little skills add up until suddenly they're making these, you know, like a little tray or a there's so many projects that you can make. And then it, I just love the confidence that comes with that, especially because they're always a useful thing that you come out with. It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, gluing noodles to paper and slathering them right. with litter. Right. Yeah. Like, we all, we all know that's always, not art, but we just pretend like it is, right? <laughs> so. Exactly. But the idea here would have been that they could take it home and use it or give it as a gift. And so it's always got a purpose. Right, right. I think that's so important. That's one of those things with boys that we like to talk about is that um, um, boys like to have a purpose. They don't want to just do something. They they don't always, you know, sometimes they have to do things where they don't understand the purpose, but um, it is helpful for boys to do things that are purposeful, um, that, that, that that's just part of their nature. They, they want to feel um, like there's a reason to do something. Um, so, so yes, this, and this like, is one of those handicrafts for boys that just seems to fit really well. Yeah, because often with the handicrafts, um, it, they often seem very girlish to our minds. Just like I always, you know, I know that's not fair because people think of poetry as girlish and that really bothers me <laughs> because boys, um, <laughs> there's nothing, most poets were men, most poets that we read at least. Um, now, but this, this is not, this is not a, a traditionally feminine type of handcraft at all it's it's very much um masculine and and are very fitting for a, ma- a male to do absolutely and i think handicrafts do get a bad rap in terms of being sort of feminine and i think you know to some degree it might be warranted you know i mean women would sew men would sew too but then you walk into your local craft store and it's filled with florals and you know, pinks and purses and dresses and things. Boys are probably just like, why would I want to do that? But when it comes to Floyd, it's, you know, they do, if you show them how to make a tray and say, okay, well, you can keep all your tiny little Lego pieces in this tray. Yeah. You're going to have a whole lot of trays in their <laughs> right. room. Before you right. Know it. You can, 
that the imagination goes wild there with how to organize your Legos. Exactly. So, so there's, so let's say now, now you start with paper, but it actually, you could actually eventually move on to other materials or are there, are there books out with all, with, with all the different materials? Well, you would generally start with paper, but you could actually start with wood. So if you're someone who has some knowledge of wood, um, that's absolutely a logical place to start too. I think paper was introduced largely because it was easier to do in schools. Not every school has the capability to, you know, have a hand drill for every child or things like that, or even, you know, the expense of buying a whole lot of wood every time is, can be prohibitive. But if you're someone who knows what they're doing, absolutely start there and start with Otto Solomon's book and you can go through Sloyd with just wood. Mm-hmm. If you want to start with paper, they would generally go through about third grade and then they could move on to wood or they could move on to other types of Sloyd, um, knitting, weaving, things like that. If they wanted to go in that direction, not everyone had to go into wood. Um, <coughs> But then if you were able to go into wood, it really is this beautiful thing because you do get to have more and more experience with raw natural materials. Because if you think about it, you're going through paper and possibly wool and cotton and wood, and it just creates this really lovely flow of using the materials that God gave us in order to create things that we can use. So, okay, so, like, what would you do if you were going to do a knitting something with, is it just knitting, or is it like a, it's a particular project that you would do for Sloyd? Well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's not a ton of literature out there in terms of if you wanted to take it in a way of knitting or crochet or weaving or sewing, and I think part of that is because, I mean, there really is just so much literature, there's there's only so many ways to knit, you know, I mean, you can make probably 90% of knitting projects using two different knitting stitches. Um, So I don't think he felt the need to create a method around that. And perhaps it wasn't being as quickly lost as woodworking or as, I don't know, I guess like the general other Sloyd. Right. He felt. Yeah. You know, it was like really needed. So he to really zeroed in on the lost arts, really. Right. And then I also wonder if, you know, I, I, he was a, a gentleman. So he maybe saw men not working with their hands with wood anymore. And so that's what he really wanted to focus on. And that was his passion. And so that's the direction he went with it. But it did then take on that broader definition again of within the school system where now, um, you know, from what I can tell to this day in Norway, they grow a garden and they know about how to prepare the soil and how to put seeds in to get the yield that you want to make the meals that you are going to serve. And then you should plant seeds for flowers to have on the table. So it's this really like planned out idea so you can get a whole picture of you know, a, a meal all the way back to the soil preparation. Oh, wow. In the same way with, you know, like the stool all the way to the upholstery and to the, you know, batting that goes under the upholstery to make sure it 
cushioned as well as the dovetail joinery and the woodwork. Like it's this beautiful wholeness to the thing where you really have to look forward and plan what you want to have and then go all the way back in the steps to how do I get there and where do I start? Yeah, I'm finding this really fascinating because um, when we think of education, and I just wonder because I don't, I have one book I haven't read it yet. I bought the book of on um, Finnish, uh, the Finland, and they're they're the, well, they're succeeding in educating their children. But I wonder because of my whole thing on remembrance, if these are cultures that are still um, in touch with the past, whereas uh, a, a a culture that only looks to the future and only sees value in the future um, is going to lose a lot of power in, in their education. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just, I've just been going off on this thought uh, process about that. And when I hear this, um, I'm just, I just really think it's, it's just so wonderful that we can come along and say, um, you know, these are things that we can do to connect us to the past, because often, you know, it's it's more than just, oh, well, we can read a history book or um, but th- this is just the very thing that we we're needing at this time. OK, Absolutely. so and I think. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. I was just going to go ahead and add on to that in that when you have the skill to do something with your hands, you know, if you've done woodworking and you know how that you know, how hard it is to get a piece of furniture to come together and how much pressure you put on the legs of a chair when someone actually puts their weight on it and Mm. things like that. When you've done it, you never really look at a chair the same way again. You know, you're always going to go in and and look at, oh, how was this put together? Did they, you know, was this machine done? Was this handmade? And the same thing, if you know how to sew a dress and you know how hard it is to get it to fit, you're really always going to appreciate the workmanship and clothing. And so the more skills that, you know, were once very basic, the more of those that we can at least come in contact with, we don't have to be experts at all these things, but the more that we can have some relationship with them and some relational understanding of how they came together, I think the richer we'll all be. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, (laughs) I have to control myself here because it was there's just so many um, rabbit trails we could take at this point. Okay, so where would you start if so if is it is this a group thing or or is it also it, does it work well for individual students either is it either or? I think that you could start in either place. I think that the paper sloyd is really easiest because I know I didn't have any ability to do wood sloyd. So I said, well, you know, we'll go with paper sloyd. Sure. Um, having it in a group definitely adds its own dynamic because then you sort of have to, you know, make sure that everyone's on the same step at the same time. And you really want to, you know, make sure everyone's listening to the directions, um, you know, whereas one-on-one or one-on, you know, two or three, however many students you have, it has a little bit of a different dynamic. Um, and I would actually start, it's one of those things, like we're all so far behind, <laughs> It was illuminating for me to do when I was in my 30s. So right. it, there's no age where you shouldn't do Sloyd anymore because they're just too old for Sloyd. Sure, I think sure. that, you know, we can all benefit from it. And, uh, you know, if you have a 12-year-old girl who loves crafts, she's going to be able to do this really quickly. And she's going to, you know, get the techniques and the skills and probably go off and be able to do it independently and be reading the book and off she goes. 
if you're starting with a six-year-old boy, it's going to be a lot slower. It's going to, but it can still be like beautiful and fun together. It's just going to be a little bit different. So everyone's family is different. Everyone's experience with this will be a little bit different, but the book that I like is really pretty scripted. And so it takes a lot of the pressure off of mom to have to like know Sloyd. It's just not necessary. I think it's just necessary to read the introduction, get the skills and the ideas and the philosophy under her belt a little bit, and then go through the projects together. Yeah, just dive in. And then how many projects does that book have, do you think? Do you have an estimate? Um, I would probably say about 15 to 20. I don't remember it. In, and and if, you, if you happen to get through that whole book, is there are there more books that you can go from from there? Well, because of the pacing, um, I mean, you can do this weekly, but really I think they only did it like every other week. Um, at our little group, because of the times that we got together, we did it once a month. So that book can actually carry you through two to three years of right. doing Paper Sloyd. And at that point, you can, you know, sort of decide if you really want to continue with a wood Sloyd, with a cardboard Sloyd, with a, you know, go on to something completely different that's, you know, fabric related or just about anything else. Um but I really think that two to three years of paper Sloyd is probably enough for most people because you just gain so much in terms of the skills and the habits that at that point you're ready for another thing. Does this, does this have it like, how does this, um, is this similar to origami? You know, it is somewhat similar. Origami largely started though. It's root is a little bit different in that it's paper folding but it was made for, I guess, partially worship, partially play. It was like this idea, you know, everyone knows a little like crane that you make if whenever you start origami or everyone knows about it as the most famous, you know, Japanese fold. But it didn't really start off as like a system of habit training the way Sloan right, did. So right. they really do have a, a difference in that. But the funny thing is, is what came across my um, Facebook feed recently is this man who has actually sort of mathematized origami. And because of his precision in the folds and all the work that he has put into studying origami, he's, you know, making parachutes for NASA and all these things and able to fold them into this, you know, teeny tiny little pocket. And mm. And so I think that there is some of the same things that can be gained from doing origami or even Charlotte had books that were called like paper modeling. They weren't Floyd, but they were, you know, I think you make like toys and things. So you, I think with the origami you know. too, you could just be like making one thing after another really quickly and not, not really taking the time yes. to, to think through why you're doing it or, or that it, this is leading somewhere and it's easy to make it exactly. just a quick, quick thing. But uh, it's, it's not necessarily a useful thing that you come out with. A lot of times it's simply decorative. So like you said, you can make a whole bunch of them and it ends up a lot like a lot of other, you know, <laughs> crafts <Trash. laughs> that end up when no one's looking. Yeah. Yeah. Old trash can. So, but I think that, if you take it with the right spirit, these ideas of, you know, you can get the ideas of geometry and precision and things like that from origami as well. It's just 
not going to have the same philosophy this, behind it. This it's slows you down be... a little bit and lets you actually get exactly. the lessons that are there. Right. Well, this is just so fascinating. Um, I wish I had, I didn't do this obviously with my kids and nor had I even heard of it. <laughs> and, um, uh, I, I mean, obviously I'd heard of it because I, it was just one of those midi uh, not medieval Victorian words that Charlotte threw around that I just ignored, I guess, when I was reading her volumes it, it's neat that people have finally, you know, are like, oh, oh, there's a word. What does it mean? And I, I never got that far. So um, are there any other? Yeah, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, no, I was just thinking that it's really because of the pioneers of the Charlotte Mason who figured out all the other stuff that the rest of us can start looking into. Oh, what's that word? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love take that. it to like, you know, that that next level of detail. Um, well, I guess the only other thing I would add is that whenever you're considering this with your student, think of the aim as being the habit or the virtues and not the product, mm. because the kids will naturally focus on the product and they'll, you know, want to make whatever it is you're here to make. But the, it's much like Charlotte's philosophy. Like we're really here for like the bigger picture and the habits and the disciplines and the virtues and not so much the product. The product comes on its own and it'll be what it is and it'll teach them precision and all those other things when they see what it turns out like. It might be great and it might be disappointing, but to keep the atmosphere light and pleasant and to let them know they can always practice, on, you know, they now they know how to do it. If right. you have better go practice and you can have time on your own and use different paper and make it fun and whatever else. So even the failure, um, the failure is part of the lesson that inability, if we get it wrong and so often we're so uncomfortable with that. And yeah, that's, that, that's there and anything that's precise, there's going to be failure before you get to success. So just slowing down right, and, and you don't have to help them that. they're going to see it. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and if we're, if we're just like, boom, 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 let's get to this, let's get to the end. Cause this is our time's up and blah, blah, blah. Here's our product. Then we're missing all the, the, all the benefits that we would get along the way of just, of just trying something and failing and trying again and, and keep keeping going. Well, this Absolutely. is really fascinating to me, and I, I'm I'm really really happy that I got to talk to you about this. Um, are there any other hints that you want to give us before? Um, so so the, what was the name of the book that you said? Let's say that one more time. The name of the book is Paper Sloyd for Primary Grades. It's in the public domain, so you can actually go print this out. The author is Edna Rich, or sometimes it has her middle name, Edna Ann Rich, and I actually prefer if you can use your printer or go to FedEx or whatever and print it out from the public domain because then the pages are not distorted. All the diagrams will actually look like squares the way they're supposed to. Some of the reprints that you can get on Amazon are priced pretty well, but they condense things or the printing's not great. And so yeah. sometimes what's okay. supposed to be a square looks like a rectangle and it's just, yeah, that could be so bad. the word is fine. Yeah. Right. right. But when you take the diagrams out of the equation, it's not quite as good. But the book is really a delightful way to enter into Paper Sloyd. Now, what about you? Do you have a web page or do you blog about this or anything? I do. I am at learninghowtolive.com. Okay. Learninghowtolive.com. 
All right. Well, um, it was very nice to have you. I really appreciate you taking time out. I know you're busy on your way to travel right now. So, um, well, thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Yeah, it's very, very nice. So it's been great to learn about Sloyd. <laughs> and um, it makes me laugh every time because I don't know, for some reason, <laughs> that word just this gets me. Um, who would have thought of that? Um, but um, I, I can't help but thinking of, um, I won't even tell you what I think of. It's so silly. But that's why I laugh every time. <laughs> Um, but anyway, um, I appreciate you talking to us, and I hope that you have a great uh, week with all your travels. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you.